Last episode, we were talking about the stages of moral growth. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Today, we're going to discuss the four principles of navigation through these stages. As I was telling you guys before in the previous episode, now we have the map, the stages towards moral maturity. Uh, but right now, we need the principles of navigation to be able to do that properly and not lose ourselves in the process. So that means that today we're going to discuss the principles to navigate the stages of moral growth by pointing out four things we need to avoid when going through these stages, okay? So number one, avoid the myth of moral neutrality. Number two, avoid binary thinking. Number three, avoid careless deconstruction. And lastly, number four, avoid fake harmony. Oh boy, it's gonna be interesting. Let's go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Philosophy in Real Life podcast where we strive to live in the most truthful and loving way possible while unmasking wrong philosophies and wrong interpretations of the world. I am your host, Carlos Santos Aguirre, a philosophy PhD candidate from Spain. Hola a todos, hola mi gente. Hello everybody, hello my people. I hope you are having a fantastic day. I am. It's a little bit hot here in Spain already. Uh, obviously, uh, we are having a really warm weather, um, but that doesn't keep me from creating this podcast, talking to you guys, connecting with you uh, every two weeks. So, so I'm really excited to discuss today our main points about the principles to navigate the stages of moral growth. All right, so let's dive in. Let's not waste any time. Principle number one of navigation. We need to avoid the myth of moral neutrality. <clears throat> Now, if you listen to the previous episode where we were talking about the stage four of harmony, and I mentioned actually that I would like this podcast to be a stage four type of community where we have this spirit of uh, encouraging one another, but also growing and challenging us in becoming more loving and more truthful in the way we live our lives. You might be wondering, so Carlos, now you are telling us that we need to avoid the myth of moral neutrality, you know, when in fact I thought that we were supposed to actually be more neutral and not be as judgmental. No, wrong. <laughs> that is not what I meant by that. And hopefully I explained it well, but if you had that doubt or if you had that impression, let me set the record straight today. So what is the problem with moral neutrality? So there is an incoherence in our modern times, okay? Because on the one hand, we have a group of people that say that everything is relative, there's no ultimate truth, there is nothing universal, and there isn't a meta-narrative or a one answer to everybody that is able to apply uh, in the most ultimate sense. But the same people who typically make these type of statements... Um, are the same people who overreact when you actually try to question this moral ideal of freedom and personal moral expression. So that means that the incoherent basically 
resides in saying that there is this space in which, you know, everybody fits, everybody's okay, doesn't matter your idea. But at the same time, that is not possible because if you have a conviction about life, which you actually need one to be able to live, because to live is to interpret your life in a qualitative manner, then it is not possible that everything goes, you know? For example, as I said before, the, the same people who say like, oh, everything is relative, there is no ultimate truth. They oppose, for example, female genital mutilation because it's wrong. Not, not everything from every culture is okay. There are some things that are wrong, even if cultures practice that. But basically, you can actually trace back this idea, this, so to speak, moral understanding in the modern era in classical liberalism, you know, starting in the 1600s, more or less, you know what I mean? There was a shift that happened at that time in history, which was basically characterized by a lot of people adopting what uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor calls procedimental ethics. So you might be wondering what procedimental ethics means. So basically, procedimental ethics means the following. As long as we agree on the method, on the procedure to arrive at any conclusion, then everything goes. It's okay. You know, for example, democracy is a kind of uh, procedimental ethics because we are claiming that as long as there is a democratic process, as long as people have participated, given their vote, whatever conclusion we arrive at, then is legitimate. But it's funny because this, this apparent moral neutral position is actually not as neutral. Why? Because that person who is claiming that we ought not to, or that we shouldn't say something to this person or to intervene in people's freedom, is already speaking from a moral orientation that this person takes as truth. In other words, this person is already speaking from a moral position or inclination by defending that type of understanding of freedom and tolerance. So with that, you see clearly that it is impossible for us not to prioritize some sort of ideal that we actually take that as truth. So as you can see, when a person is trying to defend this type of ideal, which is really common nowadays, right? Like there's no ultimate truth, but, but how evil you are if you are intolerant with the way I want to live my life. But that in itself is already a moral position in which you are defending this ideal this ideal of moral freedom in some aspects of people's lives, but in other aspects of human life, this person has a strong opinion. For example, the liberation of women, patriarchy, uh, and things like that, just to name a few. So basically, that means that we are not able to actually be in a vacuum and not hold any moral positioning. That is a lie. We might not be aware of it or be able to articulate very well what we think, but this idea of defending this moral freedom and personal moral expression in, in our lives is already a moral orientation, a moral ideal that we take as truth. So this is similar, for example, when somebody says that everything is relativistic, you know, like there is no ultimate truth. The funny part is that this is a self-defeating type of philosophy because by you claiming that everything is relative, you are telling me that your claim about life being completely relative and not having a means to achieve ultimate truth, you by making that statement, you are stating 
an ultimate truth about reality. So the golden rule is that there is no golden rule. So no, you don't get to do that because this is a self-defeating type of uh, claim about the world. So basically, we need to avoid this type of moral neutrality. We will position ourselves. But the idea is that we should be able to position, to position ourselves uh, by embodying an educated spirit in a charitable attitude with the otherness, with other people who does not think like us. And that's why I do believe that the highest form of tolerance is actually the dialogue with the person you completely disagree with. Because that is the true otherness. That is the true foreigner. That is the true person that is not you. That is the radical otherness that is hard to love. All right. So I hope that's clear about the principle of navigation number one. So we will position ourselves with an educated spirit and a charitable attitude. All right. Number two is avoid binary thinking. And I did talk a little bit about that. In the previous podcast, when I was sharing a little bit about the simplicity stage and also the harmony stage, something that uh, has helped me a lot in my studies in philosophy is that you read a lot of people who have dedicated a lot of time and effort in writing and thinking about reality and not only thinking, but also, but also creating a change, creating a transformation in people's lives. And something that you realize with this is that sometimes you will study a specific topic and even though you are studying so hard and you have an honest heart and really want to uh, arrive at the truth, you might get to a, a crossroad in which you will observe that there, are, there might be two or three different positions with respect to something that are actually really well reasoned and well defended and none of these options seem to be the winner. And, and this is something that has uh, caused me to be uh, a lot more humble uh, with regard to some of the positions I used to hold, you know, because the more I was studying and researching, the, the more I realized, wow, I really don't know what to make of this. It's actually both, both of these views or these three positions are actually quite forceful. Even if I reject the other two, uh, I don't see a clear way of actually calling these people dishonest or that they are wrong. You know, I, I, it's actually quite difficult. And so you start to develop this uh, humility, you would say intellectual humility or epistemic humility with other people because the other researchers and other writers are really trying to, to, to get to the, to the real problem, you know. Now, that doesn't necessarily imply that everything goes and that all of the all of the uh, of the interpretations are completely valid. That is not correct, actually. Um, but there is a way of studying things and approaching topics that is a more as a, that comes from a more humble place. Uh, and I feel like it's not that I had already that. It was more that the more I was studying and the more I was trying to come to certain answers, the more I realized, wow, there are a lot of people who actually have wrestled with these questions for longer than me and who are much more intelligent than me. And yet they, they don't have it as clear as I do at times. <laughs> and so maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't be that clear. Sometimes uh, you shouldn't be that convinced uh, about certain things. Because one thing to, to, to make clear is that people are equal. Ideas are not. There are some ideas that are dumb, stupid, and dangerous. And other ones are good and they foster community and bond and good interpersonal dynamics and relationships. But something that I've seen from, from people who 
are arrogant or even in my own heart many times is that many times I was uh, judgmental or I thought I was the enlightened person just because I ignored the tradition. I wasn't aware that people before me had better questions and better answers and they were able to tackle those problems in a much better manner than me. That's kind of the privilege that I get to have in studying theology and philosophy and reading the great minds and, and trying to be a, 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 a better teacher for other people and serve with that, you know, to, to the communities that I serve. Um, and so anyways, so let's be careful with binary thinking. Let's move on to number three, avoid careless deconstruction. Now, something that happens when we go through these deconstruction process where we are suspicious of our tradition of the power structures and things like that something that happens is, is that we can get so radicalized we can overcorrect. we can go to the other extreme of the pendulum and we might think just me my tradition is completely wrong they are racist they are this they are that and we just go nuts all of us i've done it many times and I've seen it being done and the internet actually rewards that type of behavior, rewards anger, rewards outrage. There isn't enough outrage to feed the internet. Like the internet is craving for outrage. The views, viral content is usually outrage about many things. And so something that happens is that we can become, we can think that we have all the answers, become really critical and we can virtue signal just because we are denouncing a bad practice or something tyrannical in an organization. Actually, this is really common in undergraduates when they start reading philosophy, when they start reading Karl Marx, for example, or Foucault, uh, or Derrida, or Nietzsche. You know, they become, yes, everything is wrong, everything is about power and things like that. So, and it makes sense, don't give me wrong, because this is driven partly uh, by pain, a lot of pain because you've been damaged and broken like all of us, you know, and it's partly by ignorance, you know, because you think that you know better than you actually do. And and so what happens in that position is that we might we might rush into an abrupt conclusion about an entire tradition just because we just saw one of the issues or tyrannical things or aspects about something. You know, and we just conclude like, no, everything is wrong. They have nothing to tell us. I'm right. They are wrong and things like that. And I think it's useful to mention that, you know, I joked about it with my friends. I always say that in my in my opinion, Nietzsche and Derrida, both of these thinkers are actually, which by the way, Derrida is the person who cued the term deconstruction. Okay. Even though Nietzsche was already doing that, but he didn't name it that way. But Nietzsche and Derrida, I, I, I usually say that Nietzsche and Derrida are the real gangsters because they denounce a tradition that they actually knew really well. Derrida and Nietzsche had read, I mean, Plato, Aristotle, the, the medieval metaphysics and the, the, the scientific revolution and many things like that. So they were really knowledgeable about what was going on before trying to criticize the tradition. I feel like now people use this term deconstruction as a cheap excuse to just carelessly criticize institutions and behaving in a childish manner at times and use it as a cop-out without the moral responsibility of 
reading, understanding, and then reconstructing ourselves into a position that is more harmonious, you know? Many times I feel like adults, when we go through this careless deconstruction, we can have these intellectual tantrums without taking much uh, moral responsibility about this process of actually being careful with what views we criticize and why, and what views we actually still rescue from those traditions because they were valid. And lastly, I would like to speak about the fourth principle of navigation, which is avoid fake harmony. And I would like to read a quote um, from Sources of the Self from Charles Taylor. He says the following, Isn't there a danger of ironing out too quickly what is paradoxical in our deepest moral sense, of reconciling too quickly the conflicts, making a, th a synthesis of what cannot easily be combined, in, in short, of making our moral predicament look clearer, more unified, more harmonious than it really is? And I think that this is, this is great because the question is, isn't there a danger with doing all of that, with rushing into a harmonious state that is not really there, that there are many cracks, right? And so with this, what I'm trying to say is that maybe you are in a place of pain, maybe you are having doubts, maybe you are having a lot of questions, maybe uh, you are going through a family crisis or, you know, you are just not a, at a good place in life right now. You're just feeling uh, that life can be very brutal and rough. And I, and I get that, you know. Um, and partly because I have the proclivity and inclination towards sadness um, in my, and, you know, I have a struggle with depression in the past and, you know, I can be in touch with human pain um, very often and think of life and death every day, actually. Um, and I have a message for you if you are that type of person, which is to not force yourself to be okay. It is okay to be a mess. It is okay to have questions, it is okay to lament, to have the time to slow down, just be, you know, because the most harmful thing that you can do when you are in this perplexity stage is to rush yourself into harmony. Because I think that that will hurt you even more than acknowledging that you actually have these questions and maybe you don't know what to make of life at this point. Um, and because forcing ourselves into a position or into a way of being that we are not really there and we are full of cracks and fragmented, it's not going to help us. It's going to destroy us for the worse. And I think that in my personal life, um, I think that I went through this process with regard to certain aspects in my life, uh, especially regarding... Uh, questions of faith and, you know, spirituality and things like that. I think that for the last four, four or five years, you know, I was going through this uh, period of wilderness, this period of questions and confusion and not having, and just feeling that many things weren't working anymore, you know, in my spiritual understanding of, of the world, of people, of my own life. And I think that going through this journey, this process, um, of perplexity uh, with with regard to my spiritual life, not only but mostly about uh, with regard to my spiritual life, was this necessity of feeling better with myself, right? Like of 
rushing into solutions of trying to find the formula that is going to solve the magic one that is going to remove this pain or this the 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 pain of doubt the pain of questions the pain of not knowing the pain of uncertainty and, and i feel like every time i try to do that i ended up being worse i was even more depressed more sad more empty and i was like what's wrong man it's like and and then you just watch this toxic culture of like getting yourself together and you know not paying attention to what's going on and that's that and just move forward and that you know that can be toxic because at times we do need to stop and pay attention uh, to deeper problems and especially if you have gone through trauma it's something a lot more complicated um, and but not only that but I would go to people who. I thought had better answers. Some of these people were in this simplicity stage. Yeah, I was even trying to look for comfort in those people because they were so clear. And many times in my mind, I was like, man, I wish I had it that clear. Man, I wish I didn't have the questions I have. But then I realized that, you know, sometimes these people were, so to speak, prisoners of their own certainty, of their own simplistic way of looking at everything. And so I re I felt actually quite disappointed and ended up being worse because you know some of them had this micromanaging behavior of fixing me and trying to you know oh no you should feel okay or do this do that and no I just needed to some time to process that to go through this journey and in the end I found other people that were able to be there for me you know what I mean um, but it's but there are no shortcuts it's not easy at times you just ha have to go through that and that process itself will refine you will purify the darker places of your soul, of your heart, of your being, basically. And, th and thankfully, I'm, I'm at a much better place with regard to so many things. And the good news about this is that when you don't rush yourself into harmony, when you avoid this fake harmony, you experience the blessing of doubt and questions. Because doubts Having doubts or questions is the starting point of true knowledge, of true encounter with who you are and with other people. You know what I mean? Because without questions, without doubting ourselves, we wouldn't be capable of actually learning new things. And I feel like doubts or questions or this stage of perplexity or stages of perplexity in our lives uh, that we feel so much. And that's why, you know, the temptation is, oh man, I'm feeling so disrupted, so fragmented that... I just don't want to feel that way. I just want to rush myself into just feeling okay again. But don't rush it because then you miss the opportunity of learning about that thing. And the question will come back to you even worse and more brutally and more ruthless. And it will break you. And it, it, it did break me many times. So that's why I'm, I'm saying that. Um, but, but if you remain there, if you remain still, if you learn to wait, if you learn to you be loved and, and take that time, that can be a portal, a window, a doorway in which you will become an even more mature self, capable of loving, capable of guiding others when they are going through these times of wilderness or as St. John of the Cross uh, describes this, uh, the dark night of the soul. There are many type of language, words, imagery to refer to these moments of crisis. So anyways, I hope that was helpful. Uh, you know, these principles to navigate. Just in summary, we need to avoid the myth of moral neutrality. We always act out in our lives from our conception of the good. We need to avoid binary thinking. You know, we need to appreciate the grace. Not everything is too clear. 
We need to learn to appreciate mystery. We need to avoid careless deconstruction, you know? So let's be responsible in how we do that because if we don't do it carefully, we can end up in a worse place than where we started. And lastly, avoid fake harmony. Take the time, don't rush it. The pain, the questions will refine you, will, will shape you into a better self if you know how to absorb that moment, if you know how to process that experience okay so lament sadness is part of the human experience and many times many images of our reality of our world many images that we have of ourselves of god of others need to die so that new images more uh, appropriate images of the world can be born you know and so it's a good thing it's a good thing it's, but it's a good thing anyway so uh, talking about the next episode. So the next episode, I'm going to speak about the insane practice of reading as many books as possible in the productivity culture and why you should read fewer but better books. Yes, we're going to talk about that. And I think I know a little bit about reading books. <laughs> and so I will just share some tips with you and avoiding this insane practice of just quantifying wisdom, which is it's terrible, man. It's terrible. Anyways, so that would be it. So remember, podcast available on YouTube, on audio, most platform, my book in Espanol, in Spanish, Amor y Resentimiento, Love and Resentment, Nietzsche and Christianity, Get It, Support It. You have it on Kindle and paperback. Uh, social media, I'm pretty much in all platform. Follow me there. And uh, also a Spanish channel if you speak Spanish, if you want to know exclusive content that I do in this in Spanish language, which is my native uh, language, uh, subscribe to my channel. You can find that in the description. And also comment, leave your comments, leave your questions, leave your feedback. I do value. I do take that into account. And please, if you found value in the episode, in the content, in this idea, please do share it. I know it's silly to ask for you to press the like button or sharing with other people because everybody does the same thing. But I do, as I say many times, I do want to do this long-term and better and offer even more quality content and analyze many things that you might be interested in. But I won't be able to do that if I don't get the support and if I don't get, you know, the audience that is willing to support me in that process. So I would love to keep doing that and that in part depends on you and on me and making this work out. That's everything on my end, everybody. I love you for free. Adios. Until next time.